believe the newlyweds are online. So, greetings, Glenn and Brenda. As I've sometimes mistakenly say, uh, Glenda. Glad to have you here. All right. Is my microphone on? Am I on? Doesn't sound like it. Right? I'm on. Thank you. All right, if you would please uh, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew in our most recent series. And we're taking our time because we want to allow the earthly life of the Lord Jesus uh, just to unfold for us frame by frame. So we're going to read this morning from verse 13, uh, which is about the baptism of Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to them, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he'd been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The British pastor and teacher, G. Campbell Morgan, gives an opening paragraph in his commentary on this particular passage that I think is quite insightful. Morgan writes, this passage commences with the word, then. This connects it with what has preceded and reminds us that these events took place in a time of general consciousness of sin and of that great moral movement throughout the whole region consequent on the ministry of John the Baptist. Then the king came out of seclusion to manifest himself to men. The voice of John had cried in the wilderness, and the way of the Lord was thus made straight. And now, at the set time, the king came from privacy into publicity. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus came directly from Nazareth. There were no intervening stops to preach. He certainly did not perform any miracles before his baptism. He came straight from the village in which he had been reared to the banks of the Jordan, and he offered himself for John's baptism. And Luke's Gospel tells us that he was about 30 years of age. This is one of the seven great events in the earthly life of Jesus of Nazareth. Those seven events include his virgin birth, 
is baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, which immediately follows this event, um, his transfiguration on the mount, then his crucifixion, his resurrection, and lastly, his ascension to the Father's right hand. The question that is before us this morning is all about the significance of his baptism. What is the lasting message of this event for people like us who read this gospel? So I want to preach to you this morning on why Jesus was baptized, and it may not be what you have always thought. In the first place, isn't John's reaction interesting in verse 14? John actually attempts to stop Jesus by saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? Well, anyone considering the significance of this event must first take into account what is being revealed by the baptizer's reaction. Because the significance, in part, is made clear by his reaction on this occasion. Matthew, of course, is the only gospel that records John recoiling from laying his hands on Jesus in this way. But why is he so hesitant? And what is the value in Matthew giving us this fact? Well, I want to call your attention first to a deliberate contrast in the text. We began reading in verse 13, glance back to verse 7, and then I'll read 13 again, and you can see the contrast in those two verses. Verse 7 says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And now verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized him, and John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? You can see, by the way, the Holy Spirit has put these two responses from John back to back, that there is a contrast being drawn between Jesus of Nazareth and Israel's traditional religious leaders. Those leaders greatly needed repentance, but they were unwilling to ask for it, so John refused to baptize them. They were unworthy. Jesus, however, came for baptism, yet he had no need of repentance. He was too worthy. And John's reaction really communicates his estimation of Jesus in contrast to those religious leaders. In other words, John's reaction communicates that he is simply unaware of any sin in Jesus' life that would justify him making a public confession along with a baptism of repentance. He can see no fault that would justify Jesus submitting to John laying his hands on him in this fashion. Now, you have to remember that John himself is a righteous man. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit since his mother's womb. He's been faithfully performing his ministry according to his calling. And yet, by comparison, he shrinks 
from the prospect of baptizing Jesus. He won't lay hands on him. Why? Well, we might think it was because John knew who Jesus was. But that cannot be true. Because in John 1.33, John says to the people who were coming to be baptized that he did not know who the Messiah was at that point. He actually says that it wasn't until after his baptism that it became apparent to him. But before that, he very plainly says, I did not know him. Now, of course, he wasn't saying that he was totally unacquainted with Jesus. That's not what he means when he says, I did not know him. In fact, they were cousins connected through their mothers. It was almost impossible to believe that John didn't know Jesus at all, or even that he was totally ignorant about the predictions concerning Mary's son. But clearly he means that he had received no divine confirmation about Jesus to this point. Whatever he may have suspected, or whatever he may have thought based upon what his mother Elizabeth had told him, he can truthfully say, I did not know him. I didn't know him as the Messiah. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So obviously, until that point, John didn't know, meaning that his initial response to Jesus coming for baptism was not based upon his knowledge of Jesus being the Messiah. Instead, his response was on the basis of how he had seen Jesus live. It was not who he knew Jesus to be, but what he knew Jesus was like. And by comparison with himself, Jesus had nothing to repent, and certainly not publicly. In other words, John only knew this individual as a man, and his knowledge of Jesus was such that He didn't feel worthy to baptize this man with a baptism of repentance from sin. But remember that you and I know far more than John did. We know that during those 30 previous years, Jesus was tempted. We are told in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted in all points like we are. So this person hasn't been living in Uh, a protected home environment and insulated from all the seductions of sin. In fact, Jesus had felt the strength of temptation as a child and then moving into adolescence and as a young adult and now as a full-grown 30-year-old man. We know that he has been tempted in every point. Hebrews 7.26 says that not one time did he ever yield to that temptation. He was holy. He was undefiled. He was entirely separate from the category of sinners. So when John bears a testimony like this, it's not based on the further understanding that we have about Jesus as a sinless man, but it's based on his own personal experiential knowledge of Jesus. And that brings me to say that this is one of those overlooked testimonies in the Gospels to one of the most critical facts that people need to know 
about Jesus of Nazareth. Many of those testimonies are highlighted in a book by Philip Schaff entitled The Person of Jesus Christ, but it's the subtitle of that book I want to point out. It's subtitled The Perfection of His Humanity as a Proof to His Deity. Well, here's a testimony from John about a 30-year-old man that implies something that is later on confirmed explicitly in Scripture, which is this, this is not an ordinary man. In other words, it, it isn't merely that by comparison with John, he has no visible public fault. It's precisely what is revealed in the later ministry of Christ and then throughout the epistles where we fully discover that the reason why this person has done nothing in his life demanding a public repentance is because of who he is. He's actually the incarnate, eternal Son of God. So when we probe the significance of Jesus' baptism, it really begins on the front end with John's reaction and what that reveals to us about the nature of Jesus. Secondly, the significance of this baptism is revealed in Jesus' own explanation for what he and John are doing. Let's read verse 15 again. Jesus' response to John was this, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, for many Christians, the baptism of Jesus uh, is as much as a mystery as it evidently was to John. And one indication of that is when Christians get baptized and uh, they sometimes uh, use this statement, well, I'm following the Lord in baptism. Well, nobody is following the Lord in baptism. Now, I understand our heart when, when we say something like that, but that comment is a failure, I think, to understand the uniqueness of this event. See, Jesus' own explanation here reveals that something was going on that is certainly not true of you and I when we are baptized. And the whole key to understanding its significance is explained in these words, it is fitting, it is fitting for us, that is, John and Jesus together, the two of them, in what they will do, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does Jesus mean by fulfilling all righteousness? Well, he can't simply be saying that together they're going to do God's will. In other words, Jesus isn't saying to John, you know, look, this is God's will. It's right that you and I do his will, and that's going to fulfill the righteous requirement of God. Now, that may be part of it, but it's much more than that. And again, we understand what John couldn't have understood at this point because it's only explained in the epistles, which were written much later. In the epistles, we know that Jesus had to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law. In other words, it wasn't enough for him to just die on the cross. And we call that the passive obedience of Christ because he submitted himself to the just payment for our sin. But do we also understand 
that Jesus could not have died effectively on the cross as a payment for our sins if he did not also fulfill the righteous requirements of the law throughout his life. In other words, his active obedience in life is what effectively enabled his passive obedience in death. He could not have died the death that he did without first living the life that he did. Because if he even committed one sin in his life, his death would have been as a payment for that sin and not the sins of the whole world. Now let's think about that and list what he has done so far that we know about in fulfilling the law up until his baptism. Number one, Galatians 4.4, he has been born under the law. Number two, he's been circumcised according to the law. The record of that in Luke 2.21. Number three, we also know, and John's testimony is somewhat a vague confirmation of this, that he has kept the law. So Jesus was sent to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law, and to this point, that has been the case. But now he takes one step further, and he fulfills the law by publicly putting himself in the position of an unrighteous person by identifying himself with all of those other people who were standing on the banks of the Jordan. What was he doing? He was identifying himself with those people. He's literally being numbered among the transgressors. I love the fact that we read this morning Luke 22 and the passage where verse 37 says that Jesus himself made the observation that it is, requir it is required for me to fulfill all of the law, including this point, he was numbered among the transgressors from Isaiah 53. Well, this is the beginning of of making himself one with his people. Now, why is that necessary? Well, turn back to Matthew 1, and let's just remind ourselves of the revelation that was given to his father. Joseph gets this revelation from the angel uh, as to why he should be called Jesus, and look at verses 20 and 21. But while he thought about these things, that's Joseph, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Let me stop there for a moment. That was a very common name in Israel. The Hebrew equivalent is the name Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. Well, there were many little boys running around in Israel with that name, the name of their hero, Joshua, from the Old Testament. But in this case, the angel explained why Mary's son must have that particular name. You shall call his name Jesus, Jehovah saves, and the next line says, for, and here's the literal uh, Greek wording of that, he it is. I mean, out of all of those other boys with the same name, he it is who will save his people from their sins. Well, 30 years later, this man comes out, as Morgan says, from privacy to publicity. He's coming out of isolation 
in Nazareth to the banks of the Jordan. And with crowds of sinners watching, he steps down into the water with John so that the two of them can fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law that were necessary in order for him to identify with his people and to die an effective death on their behalf. This sinless individual must identify with them if he is going to ever save them from their sins. You know, Luke 3.21 says that when the baptizing took place, Jesus himself was praying. Well, what do you think was the subject of his prayers? What was his mind focused on in that first moment when he publicly made himself one with the people he came to save? Well, Luke says that as he was praying, the heavens were opened. This is an expression that Scripture uses before telling us that people could see right up into the heavens. In other words, it's not just the clouds parting. The heavens are opened. And now you have in verses 16 to 17, heaven's response. So why was Jesus baptized? Well, some of the significance is found in John's own reaction. We get more of that in Jesus' own explanation. But finally, we see it revealed in the response of heaven itself. Let's read those verses again. When he had been baptized, as he was praying, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw, and look at verse 17, and suddenly a voice came. Heaven's response was a sight and a sound, and they're coming from the other two persons of the Godhead. Here's the sinless one identifying himself with sinners by accepting their baptism, fulfilling all righteousness, the baptism in which they're confessing their sins. Now the question is, well, what does heaven think about that? Well, let's begin with the sight of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove in verse 16. Here's the witness of the Spirit. Clearly, Jesus saw this happen. In the middle of the verse, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. John also saw it because in the first chapter of John, he relates that God said to him, upon whom you see the Spirit of God descending like a dove, he it is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So those two individuals definitely saw the Spirit descending in this way. Now, of course, we don't know if anybody else saw it or not. But I do want to point out that Jesus is the only person upon whom the Spirit of God seems to have ever descended like a dove. There's no indication in Scripture that it happened to anybody else because the figure of the Holy Spirit coming on other people in Scripture is like a flame in addition to the parallel, of course, with water baptism. But the Spirit of God only descends on Jesus visibly like a dove. That is unique. Now, the only way I can think to offer some spiritual or scriptural uh, explanation for that particular choice of bird comes from a comment that Jesus himself made when he used the figure of a dove to exemplify something. 
when he was talking to his followers about the nature of the world in which they would have to live, he said that circumstances would demand that they be wise as serpents and harmless as what? Right, harmless as doves. So the Holy Spirit comes on this person as a harmless dove. And let me tell you something. If a dove ever came close to me, it wouldn't be harmless. <laughs> It'd, I'd be attacking because I'm a little scared of birds. But He came upon Jesus as a harmless dove. And this is the context, remember, in which John just warned the Pharisees about the wrath to come and about the axe being laid to the root of the trees, and Jesus baptizing them with eternal fire. In that, in that fierce context, okay, here comes the Holy Spirit on Jesus, gently lighting on him, harmless dove. So with that in mind, what was the larger significance of the Spirit coming on him in that moment? Well, it's important to note here that the phrase, alighting upon him, is actually pointing us back to Isaiah 61. So turn to Isaiah 61, if you will. If you've ever wondered about the significance of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, Isaiah 61 predicts this very event for the Messiah. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. And these are the verses that Jesus himself read later on in his own ministry. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. He's anointed me, it says, for these purposes, to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And when Jesus was reading that passage in the synagogue at Nazareth, which is after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness, he's beginning his earthly ministry there. He stopped at that point. He rolled up the scroll, took his seat, and all the people kind of waited with an awkward silence for him to say something else until he made this astonishing revelation when he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The significance of the Spirit coming upon Jesus in his baptism is that it's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, because in that very moment, the Spirit was anointing him to begin his messianic mission. What was his mission? Look at it again. To preach good tidings to the poor. To heal the brokenhearted. Anybody like that here this morning? You're brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Anybody feel as if you're held captive by your sin? The opening of the prison to those who are bound. Do you feel bound? Do you feel like you're in a, a jail constructed by your own sinful actions? Look at verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And the baptism was the moment when the Spirit of God, in the form of a harmless dove, anointed him for that saving ministry. This is where his whole ministry began. So it's marvelous when John 3.34 adds, 
that when the Spirit of God came on him in that moment, he was given to Jesus without measure. What does that mean? It means this individual received the presence and empowering of the Spirit of God without limit. And John 1.32 says that the Spirit remained on him. If you go through the, Old, uh, the New Testament and you look for every reference on the relationship of the Spirit of God to Jesus, you will discover that after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit of God, Matthew 4.1. He was full of the Spirit, Luke 4.1. He was empowered by the Spirit, Luke 4.14. He ministered through the Spirit, Luke 4.18. He cast out demons by the Spirit of God, Matthew 12.28. He gave his commands through the Spirit, Acts 1.2. And when he offered himself on the cross to the Father for the fulfillment of all righteousness, he did it, it says, without spot, without any blemish through the Spirit, Hebrews 9.14. When you put those references together, it becomes apparent that everything Jesus did in his earthly ministry was through the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, he did bring good news and heal the brokenhearted, and proclaim liberty, and so on. And he did it all through the anointing ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. And I just want to add this by way of application. If it was necessary for Jesus to do what he did in that way, how much more so for you and me? What hope do we have in proclaiming liberty and bringing good news and attempting to heal the brokenhearted and proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, how can we even begin to do that without having a right relationship with the Spirit of God? So here was that wonderful moment when he was anointed for his messianic ministry. It was also the moment, as I mentioned earlier, when God identified the Messiah to John. And again, I'll just read John 1.33. He says, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This was the identification to the forerunner of the person who was coming, whom he had been announcing for all of that time. And John was now free to make it public that Jesus was indeed the one. Well, that brings us lastly then to the significance of the sound of the Father's voice in verse 17. It says, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You have the witness of the Holy Spirit, now you have the witness of God the Father. Now, what do you think it communicates to any Jew who knew his Old Testament if a voice from heaven says, this is my son. Well, I don't think there's any Old Testament passage that we have returned to again and again and again in our study of the New Testament in Psalm 2. I'm amazed at how, how often it comes back to us because it seems as if all the threads of later revelation return to that psalm. And in this case, when 
responding to the rebellious nations who are uprising against the throne of heaven, God the Father says in verse 7, you are my son. So for him to say that again at Jesus' baptism is nothing more than his own identification of Jesus in his unique relationship to the Father. But let me quickly add one more passage in the book of Hebrews that I think is significant at this point. Can you think of any other prophet, Old Testament prophet, who rose any higher in his privilege than Moses? The only one that I can think of is John the Baptist himself, because Jesus said that John is the greatest born among women, which we studied in the past. But in the Old Testament, God says that Moses was also a a unique prophet. God said in Numbers 12 that with every other prophet, I'm going to speak to them in visions or dreams. But with Moses, he said, well, this guy's unique because I'm going to speak with him face to face. I can't think of any other greater privilege for a prophet, and yet this was the prophet whose face literally shone because of the impact of that kind of relationship. But even when it comes to that individual in comparison to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says that Moses indeed was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. In other words, when it comes to Moses in the household of God, his position was that of a servant. However, when it comes to Jesus in the household of God, he says Christ is a son over his own house. And so a voice from heaven says You, of all men, you are my beloved son. It's a unique identification of Jesus. And then he says, with you, I am well pleased. Now, that statement throws us back to another Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 42. Turn to Isaiah 42. This will explain the significance of these words, in whom I am well pleased. And Let me give you, while you're turning, the the context of this passage. In the book of Isaiah, there are four passages that are called songs. They're known by interpreters as the servant songs. And the subject of those songs is a particular individual who is the unique servant of the Lord Most High. He's called the servant of Jehovah, the servant of Yahweh. It's four of those songs. The last one, I'm sure you know, it's in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, verse 12. I'm sure we all agree that Isaiah 53 is uniquely about the servant of Jehovah. It's my righteous servant who will justify many. It's talking about he he who will be numbered among the transgressors. We know the passages. That's the last song. Well, the first one is in this passage in 42, And I want to read from verse 1, where God is speaking. He says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Compare that with my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I've put my spirit upon him. Now, what is he going to do? Well, we're still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of this. But thank God he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. There are many people out there who are aching for justice to be carried out. 
Well, the day will come when justice, true justice, will be brought to the nations and all of those wrongs will be made right. And in the process of doing this, it says he will not cry out nor raise his voice. Well, that's quite surprising to me because the only way that anybody has ever taught that justice is possible is the way that Karl Marx taught it. I mean, if you really want to lift up oppressed people, well, you've you got to start a revolution. If you want to bring freedom to Gaza, well, you've got to march in the troops. If you really want climate change, you've got to rebel against the government. I mean, scream and kick and stick yourself in the middle of the street with a sign and throw paint on the Mona Lisa and chain yourself to the Harbor Bridge. Make yourself stand out. Not this individual. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. That verse is quoted in Matthew of Jesus' ministry. This is why he did not retaliate against his persecutors. And then he will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged. Even the cross is not going to crush him. Till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. The Spirit of God anointed him for his messianic ministry. And God the Father gave his voice to communicate the unique identity of Jesus as his beloved son, as well as his mission as the servant of Jehovah who would one day bring about this wonderful, universal justice. So what is the significance of Jesus' baptism? That he is the moral superior to all men? Yes, John's testimony bear, uh, reaction bears testimony to that. But far more than that, because this is the beginning of the fulfillment of all righteousness by this individual, who is that unique messianic figure who will preach glad tidings to bound up, imprisoned, dark, blinded people like ourselves and proclaim that the acceptable year of the Lord is here. It's arrived. That significance is further found in God's announcement that this is actually the Son of God, the servant of Jehovah. And you can accept this with confidence. I mean, the voices are unanimous. It's John, it's the Holy Spirit, it's God the Father, it's Jesus himself. The testimony in the waters that day were unanimous. This is he who will save his people from their sins. You can believe with confidence what John testified to very soon after that. When he must have lifted up his hand and pointed with great joy Jesus of Nazareth, and with a loud voice proclaim, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word that reveals to us the true nature of this Jesus of Nazareth. How blessed we are to worship him this morning. How wonderful to truly know that he is your son. 
very God of very God. We thank you, Father, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life and that he left the Holy Spirit to minister to us. And we have that same Spirit working in and through us, even as we worship and fellowship together. We are your children, Father. We love you. We thank you. We bless you this day for sending Jesus to save us from our sins. And we ask this in his strong name. Amen. Let's sing, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. What gift of grace is Jesus my Bye. 